Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu. I'd like to uh, welcome everyone on behalf of the Public Lectures Committee to uh, tonight's Farnum Lecture. This lecture series was founded in 1939 by a bequest by George Farnum of the class of 1894. Lecturers in this series have included John Gilgut, Robert Frost, Karl Popper, Edward Albee, Tony Kushner, and two famous contributors to the New Yorker magazine, V.S. Pritchett and Pauline Kael. And the list of far-known lectures uh, associated to the, with the New Yorker is augmented tonight with David Denby, who serves as film critic for a magazine which has had the closest and most sustained relationship with the movies of any American journal since the 1960s when uh, Penelope Gilead and Pauline Kael joined its staff. David Denby is the author of the volume Great Books, My Adventures with Homer, Rousseau, Wolf, and other indestructible writers of the Western world. Let me read you a blurb about this book by Henry Louis Gates. The academy is filled with people who are trained to write about writing. Denby knows how to write about reading, a far rarer skill and one that he combines with candor, modesty, and an unfailingly alert intelligence. Denby may be the least jaded man in the Western world. In fact, great books is the result of David Denby's experience at Columbia, where uh, uh, Columbia University, where 25 years after he earned his degree, he re-enrolled in two core courses on Western civilization that, uh, as you probably have heard, uh, have been at the heart of well-publicized culture wars. So, if only for one more night, let us welcome David Denby back to academia. Thank you, Sergio. It's a privilege to speak in this university and in this beautiful room. Thank you all for coming out on such a lovely evening. I thought that rather than give a lecture, which is really not my style, I would offer something um, more spontaneous and informal and inclusive. That is, I would describe the mood and the concerns of a working movie critic uh, allow myself to ramble productively if I can. And Leon Wieseltier, the literary editor of the New Republic, where I used to do some essay writing, said I had a talent for flying low. I'm not sure that was, I think it's a very ambiguous uh, compliment. So I'm going to fly low tonight because um, I thought it might actually be refreshing for you to hear the nuts and bolts rather than the aesthetic dream, or rather how the dream is Screwed, screwed by the nuts and bolts, literally. I'm going to paint you a little picture of the world as I see it, that is a movie world. The truth is we're kind of morose lot by, by nature, movie critics. Uh, we're creatures of the city, you know, dipping in and out of shadows, seeking enchantment through long periods of disaffection. Uh, we're devoted by necessity to craft rather than to philosophy, to steady work, and very small victories. 
a performance here, incredible work of cinematographic brilliance there, um, um, a couple of scenes in one movie, that sort of thing. You, you can't hope for complete aesthetic experiences if you're a movie critic happening to you more than you know, a couple of times a year. There's no triumph for us, really, except that it's more like a service, or, you know, or a calling, if you, if you like, if you want to make it grandiose. Um, although, and it's not a humble calling, I admit. It's a, it, it, uh, it's a public function, and it has a kind of exacting, uh, and revolves in an exacting toil of precision and fairness. And much of the time, however, we're slouching and vegetating and cultivating endless memory. I fell into a trance the other day thinking about these Jimmy Stewart westerns that Anthony Mann directed in the early 50s. I don't know how many of you would even admit to have se having seen them, like Winchester 73 and Far Country. Extraordinarily beautiful and in many ways very serious movies. You think of James Stewart as a crowd pleaser, but he, in the 50s, and Hitchcock picked this up in him also, um, he played these incredibly embittered uh, characters one after another, and this, all that kind of thing that just isn't done anymore and that's been forgotten. There was a time we weren't so morose uh, 30 years ago when I was just getting going. The 70s was really a kind of golden age for American movies. Um, the discontents of the Vietnam period were beginning to settle down a little bit, and uh, the studios didn't know how to make movies for what they took to be the kids. Uh, that is, they overestimated the size of radical and counterculture youth, thinking it, that um, they were the majority when, in fact, they were not. And so um, in an act of, of folly, which they eventually regretted, they sort of turned over the reins to a, a new crop of directors out of film school. Um, and then you know the names as well as I do, Spielberg, De Palma, Lucas, Scorsese, Robert Altman and Polanski were a little bit older. Um, and we had a great age of cinema there when movies were made uh, with great freedom. And uh, you had, I think, the richest um, period for American movies considered as an art form. But by late 70s, it was falling off. Um, the directors abused the freedom as they always do. I mean, the turning point, which some of you I'm sure remember, was Michael Cimino's Disaster Heaven's Gate. Um, which produced a rapid shift of mentality about the re relationship of, of large amounts of money to directors. And uh, there's been a kind of reassertion um, of, of control. Uh, and it's odd because movies have never been covered as much by the press as they are now, but there's a, a rather functional reason for that, which I'll give you in a second. I mean, it seems like if you go to the newsstand, like every, move, every magazine in the country is a movie magazine. Uh, the New Yorker does a lot of movie stuff, too, even, although we don't do covers, of course. But Tina Brown found herself in a weird conundrum. I mean, when she, was, when she left the New Yorker and did Talk magazine, which she didn't want to put Mel Gibson on the cover. Um, but um, you can't sell magazines at the newsstand because Mel Gibson has nothing to say. Um, or Tom Hanks. Or Tom Hanks actually is quite bright. But, or Tom Cruise. Um, I mean, you... <laughs> They, they've been interviewed a, a, literally a thousand times. They have nothing to say and at this point, but you can't sell magazines without putting them on the cover, so you put these um, stars on the covers to, to move the magazines, and then uh, you get the same process story, which is generally controlled by publicity people. 
um, they, they can more or less select what journalists, you know, anyone who's going to be even a slight bit hostile or questioning is weeded out by the publicity people. Um, they simply won't make the star available. So there's never been more coverage than in the moment. You see the Times has all these supplements. There was an Oscar supplement, uh, you know. There are seasonal supplements. It's all because of the, of, of course, because of the amount of movie ads, which uh, produce a need for an endless amount of, of editorial copy as well. It employs a great number of my friends. I'm not knocking it. But um, you would think we were living in a great age of movies, and we're not. I'm sorry to say. Um, now, I have to also, you know, we just came through a rather interesting Christmas season, and and um, I think rather rich Christmas season, and. Um, just to do a little scorecarding here, I um, well, I liked um, a lot of things. I, I liked Lord of the Rings. I, I, I couldn't follow it, but I liked it. Uh, you know, my 15-year-old my likes to tease me by, you know, challenging me to recite the plot, you know, and I can't. <laughs> he can recite it backwards, you know, I can't. Um, I've had about 100 fights with people about the hours. Um, and um, it's, it's interesting what's happened here because uh, it has obvious virtues, the, the performances, the beautiful level of craftsmanship, the matching of that gray light in, the, in England and, um, um, and, and in the New York uh, sequences. Those of you who haven't seen it should probably you know, stop your ears at this point. Uh, the terseness of David Hare's screenplay. I mean, Michael Cunningham's novel on which it is based was... Uh, ruminative and descriptive and super sensitive and hair sort of you know pared it down and um, let the camera and the landscape and the cityscapes and the actors do that work um, for him. I think the the, um, the movie is actually much stronger expressively than the novel. The the arguments are about how Virginia Woolf is represented in the movie and how her novel Mrs. Dalloway is represented. Um, and the complaint about it is about Virginia Woolf's representation is that she's made out to be kind of morose frump who never takes off her house dress um, and whereas actually um, for a large part of the time she was uh, a very accomplished uh, witty uh, hostess uh, Queen Bee in London uh, the movie is set though when she was beginning the composition of Mrs. Dalloway and she was living in, with her husband in Richmond outside of town. And uh, so those who have been fighting for a certain notion of Virginia Woolf, not that she was a neurotic uh, you know, and suicidal person her whole life, but that she, she was uh, worldly and, and witty, are dismayed by the movie and think that it, the representation of her conforms to the way women have been, artists have been represented since Sappho as neurotic and self-destructive. I, I have trouble with this argument. First of all, it's, as I say, it's set on the section dealing with her is set in one day. It's when she was beginning to compose uh, Mrs. Dalloway. I lived with a novelist for 20 years, and I can tell you that the initial stages of composition of a new novel is not a debonair period uh, <laughs> in anyone's life. It tends to be a time when you question everything that you are and everything you can do. Um, you cannot get all sides of a complex personality in, in, in 40 minutes of screen time. Um, all you can do is suggest that a person um, has a complex personality, and I think that does come through. Um, 
the, the representation of misrepresentation of Mrs. Dalloway is someone who didn't know the book might think from this movie that it, Mrs. Dalloway is about suicide. Well, there is, of course, a suicide in Mrs. Dalloway, the poet who, shell-shocked poet who throws himself out the window. But um, it is really, uh, a, pardon the expression, a life-affirming book because it's set in London after the First World War and when the whole city is shell-shocked and people are beginning to lift themselves out of it. Um, and that, I think, is, is a fair uh, critique um, of the movie. Anyway, what's funny about what's happened is, and, uh, and touching to me is that Virginia Woolf has been a kind of private property for many devoted readers for years. And um, uh, when something that you feel that intimately about passes into this kind of hideous world of mass culture, uh, there's a sense of loss and of chagrin that what was your possession has now become everybody's possession. And it just shows how successful um, those, who, those of us who love Virginia Woolf have, have been in propagandizing for her. She no longer belongs to us. <clears throat> and she's going to be represented and misrepresented by a lot of people, including some academics who are celebrating her. Then there was Almodovar's talk to her in his new chastened style, uh, not the flamboyant, brightly colored magazine graphics department store display style of women on a nervous breakdown, women on the verge of a nervous breakdown from the early 80s, but his new lyrical and chastened style. That was a marvelous movie. The Pianist, uh, I think, is good, but not not great movie, and I, I think people tend to... Uh, this is a delicate issue, um, confuse their feelings about the Holocaust with the events that are depicted in the pianist with the representation in the movie itself. I think it's, it's good, but the, that the conceiving of the character in that way is a man essentially without words, without consciousness, only musical consciousness, limits our interest in him. I was thinking how Truffaut would have done it with an internal narration um, to reveal what that guy was thinking and all those... Uh, weeks that he was hiding in uh, different rooms. Um, then there was Adaptation, which is a New Yorker material and became a movie about the difficulty of adapting New Yorker material, um, a kind of uh, masturbatory fantasy raised to high level. Um, amused the people around the magazine a great deal. I don't think it's a great film, but it's fun for about an hour. Um, and I would mention um, a couple of movies that didn't get much critical attention that sort of slipped under the, and it's the kind of thing that should never be released in the Christmas season, slipped under the critical notice. Um, a film called Narc about two cops in Detroit tearing each other up, and that was a quite brilliant um, kind of reimagining of naturalism in the movies with handheld camera and spontaneous dialogue, sort of Cassavetes without tears. Very powerful. And uh, I like Spike Lee's movie, 25th Hour, which is based on a novel about uh, a drug dealer who's too smart for his fate, who's going off to prison and his friends trying to um, figure out how their own lives are stacked in relation to this act. Um, so that's quite a lot. That's eight, I don't know how many, eight or nine movies in one season, but it reminds me uh, you know, of how little great stuff comes out the rest of the year. And I'm now going to tell you why and what world that we actually live in. It's, you know, it's as if the audience IQ raised, suddenly uplifted 40 points on November 15th every year. Um, all right. 
First of all, a general proposition, a little bit of truth-telling. We critics are as much caught up in the money business of movies as any, any other element in it. The only difference is I'm willing to admit that. A lot of people aren't. Uh, I'll, I'll make, I hope I can make that statement clear. Six conglomerates control eight production companies, right? That's the, some of these media mergers have not been successful. AOL, Time Warner, notoriously so. Vivendi, Universal. Uh, the movie companies, because they have revenue and the music companies also being squeezed like hell to produce more and more dollars because some of the newer ventures, for instance, the Internet ventures and so on, haven't panned out, AOL, Time Warner being notorious. Um, but that's all tr it's true for the movie divisions of all of these conglomerates. And so movies are made not only that, uh, you know, to maximize box office, but movies that can be cross-marketed in the other uh, elements within the conglomerate um, uh, th that can be turned into books, that can be turned into CDs, into children's toys, into clothes, into games, uh, into television shows. H have I left anything out? You know, there, there are probably six or seven other media that I, I, I'm forgetting. Now, my spies tell me that when the, at a studio meeting in Los Angeles when a new project is being discussed, when the director leaves the room, that the uh, executives talk about the project as if it were a collection of digits, you know, not, not a work of art or entertainment. And, it, and, it's, I, and I'm, I'm, this is a scary proposition because uh, most movies are still shot on film, but uh, Lucas was working digitally um, with, in Star Wars, um, and there's, of course, digital sections in all these, in all these spectacles. But it, it is possible to shoot things digitally, and I'm beginning to wonder, if, when that happens, whether the work of art or entertainment will have any kind of stable identity. I mean, you can see enormous um, legal issues here. I mean, it depends who controls it. If the director controls it, then it will have a stable identity. If the studio controls it, they can break it up into pieces. They can make a different ending. They can... Um, take out the, you know, the, the dirty parts, so that is all the good parts, you know, for certain markets. I mean, this is already happening with DVD releases of, of older movies. In Colorado and Utah, there's companies that are marketing Titanic with uh, Kate Winslet's breasts covered up. Uh, what other reason would you have for seeing the movie? I mean, why would... <laughs> why would a hotshot young, you know, artist like Leo... Uh, plays in that, as Leo plays in that movie, be, you know, painting someone who is clothed. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, you could, that's the um, cleaned-up version of Titanic. I mean, as movie is inoffensive as that. And you can imagine what's being done to things that are, you know, much tougher and rawer. Warner's um, has announced, uh, to impress Wall Street, no doubt, that it will make nothing but uh, so-called franchise movies of the type, these kind of tentpole films that are, you know, spectacles that can be marketed in 18 different ways. Uh, it's a boast that they can't live up to. You can't make 15, you know, Batman movies a year. Uh, you just don't have the material. But uh, they would like to. And they're talking about reviving um, dead franchises like Batman and Superman, which is even deader. And I don't want to see those films again, but it's because it's a pre-sold entity um, and, and it can be cross-marketed in all the ways I'm saying they're talking about reviving. The average cost of a Hollywood film made through the studios is $60 million. I'm not talking about little independent films now. We're not averaging those in. We're talking about big studio films made by members of the Motion Picture Association of America. The marketing and promotion costs are an additional 30. That's $90 million. 
to break even, you have to earn um, two and you have to gross at the box office or from ancillary markets two and a half times the production and marketing costs. Two and a half times. $90 million. Do the math. What kind of chances are you going to take when a movie has to gross from all sources $200 million or more to break even? Forget it. Um, it's very unlikely, unless it's you know a Spielberg or someone who has the authority to take certain risks, um, that you're going to get anything that takes many chances at that, at that level. And part of the reason that one is in despair, actually, is because of the very success of American movies overseas. It used to be only about 30% of the gross receipts came from overseas. Now it's like it can be 50 or even 60%. Well, that means that by little year by year, the content is slipping in ways that make these movies less for us than they are for Bangkok. Um, Bangkok rather than Bangor. That is, the spectacles have less and less local flavor. If you remember the movies, American movies of the 70s, they were set in very specific times and places, a kind of generic quality to the settings now. Um, when Vim Vendors was here, um, he was complaining that uh, Wings of Desire, right, when, when it was remade um, in American terms, was set in a kind of generic Los Angeles that it was everywhere and nowhere. Toronto doubles for New York 12 times a year because it's so much cheaper to shoot in Toronto. The union regulations are different and so on. But it's, so it's just generic big city, in other words. These are movies allegedly set in New York, shot in Toronto. And that's because if, if they're going to be marketed overseas, they don't have to have local flavor. Our movies are, in effect, being defoliated of characterization, of psychological detail, of local flavor. Um, this is part of the downside of conglomerization of distribution. The movies used to open very slowly, and one of the reasons that um, um, Sergio mentioned Pauline, I mean, is she would come out three and four weeks late because it didn't matter. I mean, the movies would, you know, open New York, Toronto, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, and then sort of opens, except for a few things that are, this is called platforming, um, except for a few movies like The Hours, which needed to gather uh, word of mouth and critical support. Most movies open everywhere at once, right? Friday night. Friday noon, actually. All the ads, all the magazine covers, all of the, the pushing of the movie on MTV, the pseudo-documentaries on television about the making of the movie, which, of course, are paid for by the film company. Um, the interviews, which are arranged by the film company. The TV interviews, which are arranged by the film company. All of that leads up to that Friday opening. Um, and then what happens? The studios look and see how the movie did, and they also get comments from people on cards uh, at selected theaters uh, Friday night, and they feed those results into their computer models, which track how similar movies have done in the past. And then by Saturday or at latest Sunday, they may decide whether to contract the run or expand it. Um, why? Because it's so expensive to promote these things. Television advertising is extraordinarily expensive. Remember that $30 million cost above the production cost. In other words, by the time the critics' review comes out Monday morning, that is, if it's a weekly magazine, the, the fate of the film has already been decided, um, in effect, by the distributors. And, uh, and unless it's one of those rare cases in which the audience 
finds the movie, so to speak, and, and, and takes it away, so to speak, from the studio. The mo most obvious example of that, I'm, I wish I, I thought more of it, a movie is My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which was not sold in this way that I just described, everything, you know, mass publicity, everything opening once on Friday, but was, so to speak, hand-sold from market to market by the stars and the director who took it and figured out what each community was like, what's, what's Cleveland like, you know, what's Dayton like. We'll figure out a little campaign for each city and then the, the, made the actors available for interviews locally and they sold it all over the country this way and it caught on. Um, and, it, and it pulled people, old, a lot of older people off their couches who might, you know, normally want to stay home and watch sitcoms. Um, the only problem with it is that the movie was a sitcom. Uh, and, uh, and I, I said this in a letter in, in a review and got some angry letters. And, and I, uh, what I, all I meant was that that audience deserved better. I didn't mean that they, all that they could enjoy was sitcoms. I think they deserve much better movies than My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And no, no sooner had I published my review than, uh, and had nothing to do with my review, but ABC or CBS, I don't remember now. CBS, I think, announced it would be a sitcom <laughs> starting next season. Um, because it had that kind of thing that all sitcoms, you know, this restaurant, the stable situation, right? That all sitcoms have in characters who just repeated the same thing, or the fixed, the, you know, comedy of humors that all sitcoms depend on. Um, what we were getting now is a kind of a conglomerate aesthetics uh, uh, from this method of making and distributing movies. Uh, I could, if I wanted to limit it to, to a formula, to, Bring it down to a formula, I would say it's a cinema devoted to sensation rather than to emotion. It's as if I, I, I would like to establish what you could almost call the rules of disengagement. How to, how to attract the audience and then disengage it emotionally because that's going to upset certain people. Well, let me give you an example of what I mean. This came together for me in one shot two years ago. You remember... Michael Bay's masterpiece, Pearl Harbor. Um, and now forget Ben Affleck nobly refusing to sleep with his girlfriend the night before going off, you know, to die and all of those, you know, wonderfully noble things. But, but uh, one shot. The Japanese have come and dropped their load and gone. And the admiral of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Kimmel, who in historical truth took the fall for the uh, surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor, goes out in, his, uh, in a little patrol boat with his officers, and they're all wearing dress whites. And the surrounding, uh, it's in the harbor, are, the surrounding seas are blackened with the oil that's spilled out of the um, battleships that have capsized. And there's also been, uh, just prior to that, other scenes of uh, people, men with their skin burned off, trying racing to the base hospital, also blackened. A very eloquent setup. And uh, so there is the whole movie, the whole meaning of the, th of the thing right in one shot. There's still the, the, the metaphor for the Navy's unpreparedness in December 7th, 1941. They're still in, they're in their dress whites and the men with their skin blackened from the oil or from flames are around them. The, see, the shot is on the screen for four seconds. Four. Now, Im imagine what... Um, uh, David Lean would have done with that moment, um, or D.W. Griffith, or John Huston, or you know any other great, or, or Akira Kurosawa. Um, it's um, 
as if they didn't want you to feel anything. Uh, now, someone explained to me the shot was pro probably digitally uh, arranged. It wasn't realistically shot. So if, if it stayed on the screen for 10 seconds or 12 or 15, well, you know, what I would think would be adequate, the audience would, so to speak, be able to read it, see that it was a fake. But that alone should tell you what's wrong, that the, movie, the shot that sums up the whole meaning of the thing, you know, uh, can't be done realistically, that it's a fake. Uh, now, I've seen this sort of thing over and over again, which seems to be consciously to disengage the audience from the meaning of the spectacle that it's exciting you with. It's as if what, this horror that we saw was not meant to be seen, only the impression of it. You know, and what good is a war epic without horror and awe and pity? If they wanted to make a, the damn thing to look like a video game, they might as well just have made the game. Now, there are many variations from one movie to another, but the elements, I think, of a ghastly new style has, have fallen into place, which I would call corporate postmodernism or conglomerate aesthetics. A couple of obvious cases. You remember the old 1968 Planet of the Apes directed by Franklin Schaffner with um, Charlton Heston sort of doing his macho agonistes. Uh, it was quite a powerful movie, actually. Um, Charlton uh, humiliated by an unexpected reversal of the species hierarchy, giving a good performance of thwarted potency. The new planet of the apes, which came and went so quickly, most of you probably didn't see it, was a kind of sexless, dark chase movie with Mark Wahlberg as a kind of blank-faced little hero. The apes were jumping around so much um, that the f my f son said that you would, you would need to possess the flitting movements of a hummingbird just to watch them yourself. Um, the physical scale of the material has increased, but the spirit and intelligence, the audience involvement, have been brutally diminished. In the, in the Oscar-winning Gladiator, for instance, the, the combat scenes were kind of a, a whirl of, uh, of, of, of swords swinging and limbs being hacked off and blood spurting up in the air. You couldn't actually see anything. It was shot in very close with a lot of fast cutting. This, this, um, this is the kind of thing that offends me, and it's a personal bugaboo. The old ideal of action, if you look at a John Ford Western or any great action direct, director uh, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, was to shoot things physically, in a physically realistic way in real space. In other words, if you have a Western and there are two guys who are going to shoot at each other, and one is hiding behind a rock and over here, and the other one's hiding behind a rock over there, out in the Alabama hills, you, that you have to know where they are in relation to one another so you understand how much danger each one is in when he sticks his head up. Simple, right? Simple, basic. Most action sh shots, sequences now in films are just one explosive shot laid on top of another. This whole thing that I'm talking about, this kind of spatial integrity has been lost. Uh, it's not considered important. Kids don't seem to miss it. And I, they've, they've probably, because they've grown up, um, looking at, at MTV where things are not related in space. Well, that's all right with me because it's uh, creating a movie that sells a song. It's not an action sequence in which you need to believe in the action in order to believe that the hero is actually in a certain amount of danger or is taking a certain amount of risk. That's the way I felt about Gladiator. Um, there was a lot of whirling um, movement. Now, of course, also the other thing is digitization. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to take some blanket um, view against it. I think there have been gorgeous sequences in The Matrix and in oh, uh, X-Men and the first hour of Spider-Man before it got silly. Um, 
you know, what digitization allows you to do is alter the laws of time and space, right? You can, you, you can compose, so to speak, up in the air. Composition is now airborne. Gravity no longer matters. Uh, that, and, and there have been rapturously beautiful things that you can only do, going back to, say, to Terminator and Terminator 2, that you can only do with, with digital films. Um, but something is missing when you aren't photographing realistically in real time and real space. The, the, the moral authority of photography is that this is something that really exists. Uh, and, um, and that's something that's very satisfying to me about that. And, I, and digitization, digital filmmaking makes me nervous past a certain point. One of the, um, what I'm saying here is that one of the tendencies of corporate postmodernism or conglomerate aesthetics is to replace action and drama as much as possible with mere movement. So now our big movies are full of needle nose flying pteranodons and exacerbated apes and cars floating through flames, a flame floating through the air, but they're no longer about much of anything else. And uh, they, they, this kind of aesthetic assumes that the audience's attention, like a faltering battery, needs constant re recharging. So these are the rules of disengagement, constant and incoherent movement, rushed editing strategies, trivial narratives and uh, with characters who don't really matter to us, pastiche as a, as a way of life and, and collage. The, more, the larger the movie, the more what we used to call content becomes almost incidental, even disposable. <clears throat> All right, enough conglomerate aesthetics. Let's move somewhere else. Independence. There were, 99 was a marvelous year for small New York-based or Los Angeles-based films made for two and three million dollars. There was Boys Don't Cry and Being John Malkovich, Election. I hope some of you saw these films or all of them. Uh, last year there was Waking Life and Ghost World and uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Um, I, I, I think this stuff is great and it's, it keeps hope alive in many ways. It's um, just barely surviving within the studio system, though, because um, they don't make enough money for the studios to care about them. They do it as they may finance them through their uh, boutique divisions, the Paramount Classics and so on. They all, the studios have these little smaller units that uh, try to do more serious movies. But uh, The Hours, for instance, is considered a failure, uh, even though it has all these nominations. It's, it's grossed. Um, $35 million domestically. Uh, it cost 24. You remember my rule of two and a half. So it would have to gross around 60 from all sources to break even. At the moment, it's considered a failure, despite um, everything. And now, if it wins the Oscar or if it wins two or three lesser Oscars than Best Picture, that it will. Uh, that's why it's important to me. Otherwise, I don't care. It would go up. Um, and therefore, rule, movies like this would be more likely to be made again. If it doesn't jump, movies like this will not be made again, even with those with actors um, like those three, who, who, by the way, all worked for much under their normal salaries. <clears throat> Sundance. Well, the two guys at, at Sundance um, who program the Sundance Film Festival, which is a marvelous event, and I hope uh, those of you who love movies get to go to it uh, sometime in your life. It's in January and, uh, you know, Robert Redford's creation out there in Park City, Utah, and everyone 
you're on a level of equality with the actors and the directors and producers, everyone mills around afterwards and you talk, it's, it's really quite uh, a lovely thing. But you have to be realistic in about what it's adding to our movie culture. They look at 12 to 1300 films uh, which are submitted, they accept 80 or 90. Less than half of these pick up distribution deals, maybe more, more, more realistic figure would be a third. Um, a lot of them uh, open and close overnight. Um, for every movie like You Can Count On Me, uh, the Kenneth Lonergan movie with Laura Linney from three years ago, uh, or In the Bedroom, uh, which was a considerable success two summers ago, there are literally 50 or 70 of these independent films that, that disappear very quickly. Um, so next point, um, the, the future of the movie past. What is the future of the movie past? Just consider this progression. Revival houses are largely gone. I mean, uh, I know there are a lot of film societies on campus here, and that's great. Um, but in the cities where there used to be revival houses, there used to be like five of them in New York alone, Manhattan alone, they're largely gone because the video stores put them out of business. I mean, there are institutional venues like Princeton or like the Walter Reed Theater, which is part of Lincoln Center. But um, the, the, the theater's full-time revival houses where, as I, as an undergraduate, I used to walk down from Columbia to the Thalia 95th Street, which I think is reopening at last, um, and see you know two films by Renoir or by Carl Dreyer or by the Marx Brothers. They're gone, mostly gone. The 16-millimeter distribution houses that furnished for fourth the film courses that I took and the other members of the film generation, so-called, took in the 60s are largely gone, put out of business also by the video stores. Uh, but now the video stores are beginning to disappear. That is the mom-and-pop video stores. I don't know what the situation is in Princeton. and my, On my neighborhood in Manhattan, nobody can afford the rent on Broadway and Amsterdam Avenue. So what's, what you're left with is the chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood in which the notion of movies as a culture has no merit, no value whatsoever, strictly marketing. Now, Blockbuster announced three or four months ago that it was going to clear 25% of its shelf space to concentrate on DVDs because there's a bigger markup uh, on DVDs. Uh, you know, more and more DVDs is like the shift from LP to CDs and 20 years ago, and we're now shifting from tape to... DVDs. Um, so what are they clearing out? They're clearing out all the low-volume items like uh, older films, classics of one sort or another, and documentaries and foreign films. Now, if everything's transferred to DVDs, that will be fine. Uh, but I don't think a lot of stuff is going to be transferred. For instance, the older films, you're never going to have any trouble finding Citizen Kane or Singing in the Rain or Double Indemnity or Gone with the Wind. But what about the second and third level stuff that those of us of a certain age, grew up watching on commercial television every night. Million dollar movie, remember? And um, it's, it's, it's version in every city. Um, there's, some of it is on um, American movie classics or Turner classics, but um, as a regular event on television, they're a little hard. The, the second, third, and fourth level repertory is harder and harder to find. Now, I want to return to this issue of preservation because there is a way out. Uh, and, um, but let me continue my, my survey of the world that I live in. In the popular press, serious critics are swamped at the moment by um, I, 
pseudo-critics who generate blurbs um, for the ads in return for being junketed to New York or Los Angeles 20 times a year. Um, I don't want to get too moralistic about this. If I lived in Des Moines or Phoenix, I would want to, and I wasn't married and didn't have kids, I'd really rather spend the weekend at the Four Seasons in New York or or in Los Angeles or the Essex House um, um, than I would uh, necessarily at home. So I understand the attraction. But uh, if you wonder why, when you open the Sunday Times and and it's a movie that's opening in a week or two weeks, the thing is garlanded with masterpiece quotes, that's the reason. Those are not excerpts from reviews that have already been given. Nobody's reviewing a movie that's opening two weeks hence in the Sacramento Bee. Those are quotes that are, uh, that are gathered uh, on junket weekends in which the press is brought to New York, shown the movie, given five minutes with Tom or with Tom or with Julia. Um, five or six critics will, will uh, talk to one of these actors who will go from room to room. The, the, the local TV version, is, uh, that, which is totally controlled by the studio, is that the critics will ask questions uh, of the actor, and then uh, the, uh, the responses will be taped and will be sent to the local television station, and if they want to be unscrupulous about it, they can cut in their local critic as if it was a one-on-one between you know, Joe Schmo in KQE, whatever, and Tom. Um, is this the end of the world? No. Is, is this a crime? No. It's business, right? It's just the way the world works. But it, it's cor- corrupted a lot of criticism because people are accepting those trips to New York. What if you take the trip and don't give the blurb? Well, you'll be invited again. You just won't be invited a third time. The, the way it works is you see the movie Friday, you have this actor interviews Saturday night, they wine you, they dine you. Sunday, you troop into the publicist's office on the third floor of the hotel and you give you know, fantastic, the best comedy since Some Like It Hot. Um, and there it is in the Times two weeks early. Now, the studios, you know, went the next step a couple of years ago and actually invented someone in New Jersey who didn't exist. Um, it was Columbia. They had a whole bunch of turkeys coming out, and they couldn't imagine anybody would like them, so they made up the, a critic for, for a weekly paper, I think in New Jersey, the Ridgefield Press, or something like that. And, and, and these blurbs appeared with the Ridgefield Press under it, and um, with a name of some critic, and, and nobody said anything. The, the newspaper involved didn't say anything because it, it was valuable to them to have their name in the New York Times, even in an ad. <laughs> the studio was shocked when the, this was exposed. Shocked, just like Claude Rains. <laughs> uh, so, all right, what is, the, what is the result of all this is that... Um, well, let me, let me just explain a little, more why, a little more why this happens, because it's coming off as very, very harsh. Newspapers are in desperate competition with other media, and editors and writers you know, are under considerable pressure to downgrade their movie coverage. A talented critic, say, if there were a new Pauline Kael in Des Moines, you know, would she be encouraged to, to, to cultivate her style and her personality? I doubt it very much. She would probably be, someone would sit on her and tell her, get with the program. This is a bad business. And so, and so the critic is sort of cut down in various ways at, at many newspapers. They're asked to shorten and punch up their reviews, or they're put, you know, a star or a grade um, next to the thing, or, or the critic is undermined in other ways, like the, they will do a Vox Populi column with pictures of people outside the theater and asking them their opinion, um, and some of which are worth hearing, some not, you know, like that. Um, to cut down the critic is... Um, 
And I think editors are afraid of criticism in many places. They think that uh, readers will somehow feel outclassed by a strongly worded opinion. Not, th not that they won't enjoy it, but they'll be offended by it. This is a democracy. You know, if you say your opinion is better than everyone else's, you're in trouble. Um, but, of course, you can't be a critic unless you think that. So what the editors really want are the star interviews, uh, even though, the, as I say, that you know, even if Tom and Tom and Julia were geniuses, they would simply run out of things to say. They've been squeezed too many times. They really want that. So, so the meaningless stories and the fake interviews on local TV channels proliferate, like Hudzu. There are talented people writing criticism all over. I, I, and I don't mean to imply there aren't. They're in Los Angeles. They're in Boston. They're in, I, I get to see stuff every once in a while. Somebody sends me something, and it's, some of it's terrific. But um, it's, it's a very tough system to beat. And I think even the New York Times um, has been, in a way, pulled into this. What I'm getting at here, as you can see, is that the, I'm saying that film journalism has become an aspect of marketing in the, in the period of conglomerate control of movies, even the Times. I mean, the, it's the single biggest advertiser in the paper. The, the quantity of movie advertising has produced a double arts section on Friday, the first devoted to movies and theater, and the second to fine arts and classical music and so on. It's produced all these seasonal supplements devoted to movies. I mentioned this before. Somehow the paper found one of their three critics to give a rave to every single prestige movie that opened this Christmas season, every one of those eight or nine that I mentioned before, plus others. Far from heaven, I didn't mention that. Um, I don't know. I won't go any further than that. Let's say you get the message. I don't think the people doing importing and programming of, of foreign films or programming festivals are any less uh, astute and dedicated than they were 30 or 40 years ago. In some cases, it's the same people. I admire them without reservation. I'm grateful to them. The problem is building an audience for quality Movies, the foreign film audience has slipped. I mean, there used to be an art house, um, and there probably were a lot in Princeton in the 50s and 60s, and in every college town, certainly, in the suburbs, certainly, um, as well as in big cities. Um, most of them have disappeared, uh, or there, maybe there's one screen at a mall um, where you can, you can get to see something a little offbeat. Um, and the thing about the malls is um, you see the film business, theatrical business, is all based on, uh, the success of it, that is, is all based on how many bodies you get into the, the mall. Um, and the reason is that um, for every dollar uh, of ticket price, the theater may keep only 30 or 40 cents. It depends on the different deals for different movies. So Spielberg is notorious for driving a very hard bargain. And Lucas, too. The theaters will only get 10 cents or 20 cents um, with a film that's less powerful, less, less pow obvious, powerful appeal. Um, they may get 40 cents or 50 cents. Why do they want a film when they can only get 30 cents out of every dollar? Well, because the real money at every theater is made at the concession stand. Um, the, um, the 30 cents that they get out of every dollar or 40 cents cleans the toilets and keeps the projector running and the electricity on. The money is made at the concession stand, and that is why the chocolate bars are all the size of elephant patties. And, and you know, you could drown a rabbit in the small Coke um, because the markup is incredible. The single most important 
event in the theatrical business in the last 10 years was the invention about six or seven years ago of that plastic cup holder on the side of your seat that allows you to put your Coke down and go out and get another popcorn. Have you noticed that the coming attractions seem to have gotten longer and longer? So there's more and more time for you to buy stuff. Um, so that's why if you go, I don't know, you know, around here how it works, but if you, you know, if you go to sometime in the middle of the summer and pass a um, suburban um, mall complex, that it, you may have one movie playing at five or six screens rather than six movies playing at one. And the reason is to get as many bodies in there as quickly as possible to make that money. So despite the enormous increase in the number of screens, it doesn't actually help smaller budget films that are not mass marketed in that way. There isn't, often there isn't room for them. Um, all right, so you, the retort to all this, of course, is so what? You know, if, if you're, that is the retort to a critic who complains in this way, and I don't want to pretend here that it isn't, it isn't the best job in the world. It is, despite everything I've said to you. Um, you know, you can cultivate your garden, you can try to write as well as you can, uh, you could argue that, in fact, criticism is more important now than it was 30 or 40 years ago. But I think it's depressing, a lot of what I've told you, and I think also a critic without some vital connection to the commerce of movies is not in the best shape. No matter how much you love the art of movies, if you're not in touch with the commerce, and not all my colleagues agree with me, because, you know, the whole idea of this damn thing was that it was going to be a mass art form. That, that's what James Agee wrote in The Nation in the 1940s. This was the greatest chance since Shakespeare, he said, for a, for a popular art form. That was the dream of Chaplin and Griffith and Wells and Ford and, and John Huston and Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and, you know, all those people. Hitchcock, those Hitchcock's movies, which we now consider high art and have, and have inspired hundreds of doctoral dissertations, were made for a popular audience. He, Hitchcock never thought of himself as a minority audience. He always thought of a large commercial audience. Um, and so it did function. And um, I would make this brief for the studio system, which was when everyone you know, was on contract at one of these seven studios out there. They, since they owned the theater chains, they, didn't, they weren't so worried about attracting people, and there was no other competition. There was no, except for radio, there was no television and there was no internet and many fewer things to do. And so larger proportion of the population went to the movies in 1946 than goes now. And um, 80 or 90 million people went a week uh, and a much smaller population than we have now. Um, that that did it, did, was the average movie better in 1946 than now? No, I doubt it very much. The, 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 I'm, uh, I would say, however, there were more movies in any given year produced by that system where they were more relaxed and, didn't, and there was, they didn't worry so much about attracting Bangkok. Um, there were more movies that an adult could watch with pleasure in 1946 than there are now. The, that's, I think, the bottom line. And now I, wanted, I, I wanted to come back to this issue of preservation um, and, and digitization because this is a real worry uh, as if I haven't depressed you enough uh, already, I am worried about the survival of minority tastes. Um, classical music at, in, um, in, in record stores, jazz, blues, um, old movies, foreign films, documentaries, 
just think about the economics of this. I don't believe that Tower Records is going to continue to devote this kind of acreage to classical jazz and blues with this low a volume. They're only at one or two or three percent of the entire amount, and the whole CD business, as you probably all know, is in terrible shape because of the file sharing that the kids are doing, uh, which has knocked the hell out of retail CD business. So I just can't believe that minority tastes are, are going to continue to receive that much space. <clears throat> and in Blockbuster, as I suggested earlier, there's no sense of movies as a culture in the foreign films um, and documentaries and uh, old American movies could disappear if they're not digitized and, and issued as DVDs. <clears throat> there, um, there's a solution. The solution is the utopian vision that we all, many of us had three years ago when the tech boom was still riding high. And I, my new, new book, which is coming out next January, and it's called American Sucker, is about this in part. Um, and that vision was that we would have an all-optical, transparent network where uh, digits would travel at the speed of light from any point in the world to any other point, and that you would be able to download any damn thing you wanted. With, you, without broadband access at home, you do not have access to movies and Drew Rosen Cavalier and the complete catalog of the Louvre. You need, right, broad pipes. And so far, it's all happening a lot slower than we had, those of us who were thinking in this utopian way had hoped. That is, 28% of internet users have, either, have broadband access that is either cable, modem, or DSL. Um, <clears throat> And that's all, only 28%. It's, it's rolling out much more slowly. So we are in a peculiar and awkward kind of Alphonse and Gaston act here culturally. That is, there's not enough of this rich media content available to make home, many home users necessarily want to pay the extra 20 bucks a month beyond a normal internet charge for broadband. Um, Napster was the killer application. Napster is now illegal, although file sharing of music, um, if you have children, you undoubtedly, teenagers, you undoubtedly know this, survives underneath the law um, with all these other little file sharing companies. But Napster is sort of out of business. Um, that's one, that's the Alphonse part, and Gaston is that the content providers, so-called, whether it's a movie company or whether it's the Louvre or whether it's the Princeton Library, um, it doesn't see any point in digitizing all its content and making it available unless there's a certain number of buyers. And so if with only 28% um, having broadband internet connection, there, that's, we haven't attained a critical mass yet. My, my utopia is that you'd be able to download anything you want at any time for a fee whether it's, whether it's the ring cycle of Wagner or whether it's the complete cartoons of Jules Pfeiffer or Leave it to Beaver, whatever your damn taste is, <clears throat> and you would have it there on your hard disk. That is, it's all technically possible. It's just not economically feasible at the moment. And my fear is that in this Alphonse and Gaston of everyone waiting for the other person, that large amounts of stuff could fall into an abyss and disappear, at least for a while. And the paradigm of what could go wrong is the Bettman archive. Otto Bettmann left Berlin, I believe it was, in 1934 with a suitcase of clothes and a suitcase of photos of, of people in the Weimar Republic. And it wasn't just Hitler and Goebbels and, and the early Nazi period. It wasn't just the statesmen. It was also ordinary people. And he started this fabulous uh, archive in Manhattan um, and was run pr profitably for many years with American photos and photos from all over the world. And it was not just Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. It was farmers and workers and everybody else. And you could not publish a news magazine or do a book about America without 
getting into the Bettman archive and looking, putting your hands through 10,000 pictures. Um, Bill Gates bought the Bettman archive, whatever it was, five years ago through one of his dummy companies, Corbis, with the intention of preserving it all because like all archival materials, it was beginning to age. Photographs turn yellow, et cetera. But I mean, I assume this is true for all, like I'm sure the Princeton Library regularly has to assess its archive materials and figure out how to preserve them. Okay, it's not the end of the world. It seems to me a problem that could be manageable. But um, in any case, he bought the whole thing and they set up a website and they preserved the images on the basis of what hits they got f for um, requests for those images. And of course, they got requests for the most famous images, like Einstein with his tongue sticking out, um, or Marilyn holding down her dress um, as the, the, the air is blowing up. And, um, and then they stopped digitizing it and sank the whole thing into a mine shaft outside of Pittsburgh, where it is inaccessible. You can't get to it, uh, even if you're a researcher. So, and you can't do a book um, of photographs unless, as, uh, you know, with any freshness unless you put your hands into 10,000 pictures. That is my paradigm of the way things could go wrong, and I'm afraid the same thing could happen to all of those cultural materials that I've already, um, already mentioned. Um, uh, what's the solution? Well, maybe when we get to 40 or 50 percent um, broadband um, at home, uh, this uh, log jam, this uh, Alphonse and Gaston Act I've been describing will, will break up. At the moment, the signs are not encouraging. Most of the uh, 65 to 70 percent of the broadband access is done through cable modems, like Roadrunner in Manhattan. I don't know what you have here, but something equivalent, I'm sure, rather than DSL, which forces uh, more digits through your old copper telephone wires. And it turns out that the people who subscribe uh, through it through their through cable tend to want they I mean they get in there originally because they want cable TV and and they go for the kind of they tend to be people who want the softer kind of programming services that you get on cable TV HBO and so on in other words they're not the dominant method which is cable modem is not people of the most challenging and discriminating taste so whether they're ever going to care for this kind of culture that I'm talking about I don't know it's um, it's, it's happened in music. The, the, you know, the amazing thing about digits is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's, it makes distribution easier than ever before, and it's only a matter of time, by the way, before f before film is no longer is, is no longer shown in theaters. That, in other words, that we'll have digital projection because it's so much cheaper. You can bounce the stuff off satellites, um, and rather than shipping these enormous tins um, with film. And uh, it's, which it's just the economies of scale are extraordinary. It's going to take maybe another 10 years before all the theaters convert, but event, that's inevitable. Um, I'm not talking about digital oh. filmmaking now. I'm just talking about projection. But digits are a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they're, they're so manipulable and easier to distribute such that we can talk about, you know, shipping the entire Library of Congress to Sri Lanka if we ever get to this paradise I'm talking about, this all optical network. Um, and on the other hand, though, it's very hard to control. So it's killing the music business. And um, the same thing could happen to movies. Uh, my younger son now is able to, to get movies through these file sharing programs. And unless the studios confront this directly and take control of it and figure out fee-based ways of doing it, um, the whole thing could pass out of their control. And, but that is the solution to preserving the cultural 
passed. It's not an ideal solution, but um, it's just the best we've got going for us now. And I've been talking much too much, and uh, I should stop. And uh, we still have some time. And I, if, if there are questions you'd like to ask about anything I've said or about the New Yorker or film criticism or journalism or anything. Sure. But I can tell the prologue is okay. Never mind. Your talk going in this in this direction. I just wondered. I find it ironic that your reviews were of old school, and what was the other review that came out in the New Yorker? Tears under the sun. Tears of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Why the New York Times has an excuse to review these movies because of the large ads, and you certainly didn't give them right. glowing reviews. But why are you devoting attention? Why does the New Yorker devote detention attention to right. movies? Right. Well, like these? we we choose. We are each Anthony Lane and I each with my colleague Anthony Lane and I each have twenty three shots a year, which is not many. And you're right; it's very it, 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 you you have to make a very careful choice. Um, I thought Tears of the Sun was interesting because of this moment. It was strictly a, a temporal issue. That is, we're about to go off in a you know, allegedly righteous war. And this is a movie about the American military. Th for those of you who are not aware of what we're talking about, this is a new Bruce Willis uh, action movie that opened last Friday, and uh, it's set in Africa. Um, and it's a kind of guilty reflection on our failure to lift a finger to help Rwanda. It's an imaginary situation set in Nigeria in which a bunch of American uh, specialists go in to rescue an American citizen and wind up staying and helping a bunch of uh, uh, Africans who are patients in the hospital to escape um, ethnic cleansing. So it, it, uh, you can say this is just a crock, a self-flattering myth of America as a, as a uh, uh, moral military engine, but I thought that it was an interesting reflection on something that obviously is about to happen. So that's why I did that. But we, you know, you, you, you have to shift among different criteria. You have, you can't not cover certain big movies because everyone wants to hear about them. If there are little movies that you think are worth talking about, then you should certainly do them. Um, and, uh, but I don't like to pan some $2 million movie, on the other hand, if it's, or, you know, or some foreign film that I don't think is only half good because I don't have that many spaces. The Times covers everything. The Village Voice covers everything. Uh, I, I admit, it was a controversial call to do Tears of the Sun, but I happen to like Bruce Willis. So. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting. It's also gorgeously made. That's the thing. Yeah. I sort of believed in the thumbs up more. Yeah. I'm sorry, the thumbs up of Howard Ebert, right? right. Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert, yeah. And when he had the other partner, and now Gene, it, yeah. it, it seems that the thumbs are up on everything, and at least in the newspaper. And I and I just wonder, is he also being, for want of a better word, bought by these same type of situations, or is he is he really believing what he's writing or thumbing up? Uh, I think he has generous taste. Let's put it that way. Um, you may notice that those, all of those shows, and Roger's now been on for 25 years or something like that, uh, involve clips from the studios. Can you put the rest of it together? You're dependent on them for a favor. Now, I'll say this in defense of, of Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel when he was alive. It's, it's now Richard Reaper, I think his name. They do have very uh, 
Catholic taste. They like all kinds of movies and not just big studio movies. They like foreign films. They like documentaries. They, uh, Roger Ebert genuinely adores movies, and he will, he will you know, see five a day at a film festival. He has a great deal more patience than I do. So um, is he very discriminating, or do they go very deep? No. And yes, this is part, this was the very successful part of the commercialization of, of reviewing and turning it into an aspect of marketing. Yeah. Yes. Bruce, Bruce Willis talks fluently German or French or Humphrey Bogart. So, I mean, the dubbing, which God forbid, should happen in this country, but do you think it would help a film? Like, for example, Das Boot was dubbed and in both versions yeah. and very successful. Would it help the foreign films to, be, to get better? I mean, uh, wider, uh, wider audiences? Yeah, but do you, I mean, I, I hate seeing dubbed movies. Do we, do you want to see an Almodovar dubbed, you know, by a bunch of actors in New York with no, Spanish accents? I mean, I mean, could, I, I, um, you might be right. In my, I mean, because this is standard practice in Europe, as you say, um, and in all through uh, Asia. Uh, and the masses, also. you know, that's what this country is after, the masses. So if they can sell it to the masses, then it will make the money and they can make more good movies. I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether people would accept it or not. We, unfortunately, they don't seem very happy about reading subtitles either. Um, you know, the thing about foreign films here is that there's always one that breaks through and does an incredible amount of business, like Roberto Benigni's movie, which I detested a few years ago, Life is Beautiful. Um, or uh, the po Il Postino, which was perfectly nice, or, or um, the one about the film projectionist. Um, it's an all or nothing, weirdly all or nothing. And that's, that's a f function of American marketing in a winner-take-all society. It's is even affecting foreign films, all or nothing. Yeah? I think what you're talking about is the dumbing down of America. And people don't want culture. But I was going to ask you if you had seen a film that was everyone's favorite at Telluride two years ago. Everyone was so moved by this film, and it disappeared. A song for Martin. No, I didn't see it. I've heard of it. Yeah, what happened to it? It wasn't distributed? It just disappeared. It, I don't think it ever was. I well, you have to find York. someone. It, it was in New York for um, a week. It was the most beautiful, loved movie by everyone. Well, the Internet would be one solution. I mean, if you could... Um, just as say books, that, you know, like doctoral dissertations are going on the internet when there's no, when there's a very tiny audience for it, and university publishers are too strapped to publish, uh, you know, monograms about uh, Spence, Spencer's use of water imagery. That you, you can publish it. I'm, I'm not putting it down. You can put it on that on the internet, but you could put independent films. Um, you know, you could have AOL Friday night at the movies if there were enough people who would pay for it. Um, and you'd pay three or four dollars, and you'd download it, and you'd look on it on your nice, you know, decent, not an ordinary computer screen, but something a little larger, maybe. And that would be the place for that kind of film. I mean, that's technically feasible. It's just making the economic, someone having the imagination to make the economics of it, of it work. Digital filmmaking uh, for for low budget, it's good. This is a boon for filmmake for film students. And I mean, when I was a film student, we had to pay for film. It cost, you know, $10,000 to make a little movie about the sewage system in Palo Alto. Uh, so that was tend to be the kind of movie you made because there was a, you know, city would pay for it. But now with digital filmmaking, you can get out there and do something um, very cheaply. Yeah, someone over there? No? Yes, there. No, I guess I'm... 
All right. There you go. Why does it cost two and a half times the budget to draw even on a movie? Because, first of all, the theater will take its cut, which can be 30% or 50%. depends on the deal and the kind of movie. Okay? Second, the distributor, whoever, even if it's the same studio that produced the movie, has enormous overhead costs. Then you've got to add the cost of print, um, paying for the prints on top of that. It's a crooked system of accounting, if you want to know the truth. Um, I mean, it's, by the time the money gets back to the original producer, it's been, everyone's taken a little bite out of it. But uh, this is, so, you know, Hollywood accounting uh, was notorious before the accounting scandals of two years ago. But that's what it is. That's, I think that's the rule of thumb. So Now, but there are all these ancillary markets, you see, that may take five years for the thing to pay off if you include VCRs, you know, videotapes and DVDs and sales to cable television and commercial television and all the, all the other ways of marketing. It may take five or six years, but it will eventually pay off or else we wouldn't have 500 movies a year from this system. But that's the, that's the rule of thumb. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't see you. Sure. Right. That's it. Yeah. What happens to the sort of mid-range budget films? Why are there less heroes now? And what can the Indian producers in the range do, do you think, to survive or to survive or expand their their base of bodies or eyeballs? The the um, I think that the mid-range is where the creativity probably will be. The Cone Brothers, you know, Joel and Ethan have never. I know Joel, and I asked him, I said, how have you guys survived? They've made about a dozen movies. And they said, we've never gone over $30 million, and we write all our own stuff so they can't, you know, take the script away. Um, what do you, Alan used to work in that range and make a movie every year. Um, and, and, he, and he's never had a big grossing film except maybe um, Annie Hall. So it's, it's possible if you're very disciplined. The trouble with these directors, a lot of them, is that this sounds insane, but they get into this Hollywood mentality where it's a status symbol to waste a lot of money. Um, and um, they don't want to work with a budget for $30 million because they can't do this digital effect, they can't go to Monaco, they can't you know, do this, they can't do that. I mean, uh, the, it's, it be, you know, they can't use the actors that they want. The reason that some of us fret over uh, you know, how much a big star is paid, it's not mere moralism over the overpaying of you know, of, of, of Tom Cruise. The reason it's a serious issue is that if Tom gets $22 million, then the second lead, you see that when the studios had everybody on contract, they simply assigned them to the movies that they wanted them in. Casablanca was put together by a man named Halby Wallace at Warner Brothers who chose Humphrey Bogart. It was, you know, it was originally supposed to be Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan, but it wound up to be Humphrey Bogart. And, Ingrid Bergman, they just assigned them. Now everything is packaged through, uh, through agents' offices or producers' offices. So if, if Tom Cruise is getting $22 million, then the second guy, the second lead, um, will ask for 15 because he, he'll figure he's essential to making this package work at all, or, or 12 or whatever. And the cinematographer, whose normal price would be three-quarters of a million dollars, if he figures he's responsible for the look of the film and, and central to the conception of what it should look like, like maybe the guy who shot this Tears of the Sun, which is quite beautifully shot, whatever you think of the rest of it, he, he may ask for you know, X more money, and you see what I'm getting at. It, they, um, 
leapfrog over each other in their demands. So that's why one another reason why the prices go so high. The two and three million dollar range is is flourishing. Um, I saw one yesterday that was at Sun that's opening the new director's new films series, which I am going to review, uh, called Raising Victor Vargas, and um, it's made. Uh, uh, on the Lower East Side, uh, and it's about uh, Dominican family, three teenagers and a grandmom, who's made for two million bucks. Um, and, and I liked it. It was very, it was small. It didn't, it was just about family life, and it didn't try to make anything apocalyptic out of the ordinary stresses of uh, adolescence. Um, there are a lot of these films. I don't, I will, you know, I, I, I will praise this thing, but I don't want to oversell it either, because it is small. Um, and that's precisely what's precious about it. But I, you know, I fear for it financially. Now, one solution, as I say, is to work, shoot in d digitally. Um, you can't shoot Lawrence of Arabia digitally, um, but you can shoot, uh, you know, in a small set um, with a couple of good actors, um, chamber dramas, or even things on the street and so on, um, using lightweight, um, so you don't have to print everything because you're not using film. So you just choose. Uh, on a computer, what shots you want, you edit on a computer. It's incomparably cheaper. That is the solution, I think, for you know young people just starting out. There's a producer in New York, a veteran producer named Edward Pressman, who's produced many good movies, including Badlands and Terrence Malick, like that. And he is starting a new company in which he will produce one and two million dollar movies, and they will be of two types. They will be um, uh, every director, like Oliver Stone or Almodovar, every big-time director, or Barry Levinson, you know, has a script in the back of his drawer that he never was able to get made for one reason or another. If and they will, that, that's one kind of film, and the other will be beginning filmmakers who have a good idea, and that and they'll be done for a million or two million dollars, and there'll be no sets or anything. You'll just go and shoot them. You know, hope springs eternal. Like you know, the whole new wave took off because. Cameras in 1958, 59 became portable and it became a lot easier and cheaper to shoot movies on the streets of Paris. And so you had a new aesthetic that grew out of a technical change. Yeah, someone else? Yeah. Hello. I took a course in the fall uh, led by the famous rock and cultural critic Grail Marcus. And oh, yeah. we read Pauline, Pauline Kael and Manny Farber, and we talked a lot about writing and the style of writing and sure. how Lester Bangs would write, you know, through the night and 25 pages before it got to something he would want to say. So I was wondering if you could comment on maybe your writing process or the importance of writing in criticism in regards uh, to film. I know The New Yorker certainly prides itself on uh, the writing and how important and integral the writing is to criticism. It's not necessarily the blurbs at the junkets that you talked about earlier. Right. Well, there's, obvi there's no formula. Um, since um, you want to cultivate a voice, and um, one thing about Kale and, um, was that she had an extraordinary amount of space, which uh, for her reviews, which were often three and 4,000 words, some people felt too long, and she told you too much. None of us has th that kind of space anymore except maybe in the alternative weeklies uh, that I mentioned in Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, and so on. Um, it, specific to movie reviewing, there are two media here. There's the screen and there's you. You're a receiving medium. You're seeing, you're having, you're having a, uh, engaged by an extraordinary um, melange of uh, audiovisual stimulants that are, that are playing on this receiving medium of yourself. And, and when you're in the theater, you're feeling all sorts of 
um, emotions, boredom, excitement, anger, joy, fear, arousal. And you get home, and then you have to write the thing. I try to replay the movie in my head and to, to find the words that objectify those feelings that I had. Um, anything that, that loses touch with the immediacy of the screen, I think, is going to go dead as a piece of writing. Um, a, a great critic named Robert Warshaw entitled his collection The Immediate Experience. It's a sensuous and even sensual medium. I mean, that's what draws us, is things moving, flesh, background, you know, foreground, the relationship of spaces and all of that. Now, that's the hardest thing to get into movie reviewing. It's damn easy to say whether it's good or bad. Everyone has opinions, right? Thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, that's what we've been complaining about all night. Um, and it's actually not hard once you've had a decent education just to draw out the thematic uh, constants in a movie and the thematic development. What's much harder is to get that sur sensuous surface. Well, you mentioned Manny Farber, who was an art critic and who was great, still alive. He's in his 80s. Um, and uh, published a collection called Negative Space, which has extraordinary writing in it. Um, and he was better than anyone at getting that, uh, what the visual experience um, of movies. It's very hard to, that's the hardest part, evocation of what the image is. Um, opinion and thematic stuff is, is a lot easier. And one thing that Kale told all of us was that there was no point in talking about the theme of a movie until you establish something on the screen, so, you know, some, something material, a body, a face, uh, a setting, a mood, um, something like that. So that's the specific problem of, uh, of writing film criticism, I think. And uh, the rest of it I can't generalize because it's all about craft and about ri revising and revising and revising. The computer certainly makes it easier. Um, I, I tend to, uh, was it Dorothy Parker? Was it Dorothy Parker said that she revised five words for every three that she wrote? I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. Um, just do it over and over. And, and I, I spent a lot of time on word, on rhythm and prose rhythm and trying to balance clauses and keeping momentum going without losing the flesh. That's, that's it. If I see one, one last question. Yeah. We have one, one here. Oh, okay. Sorry. About 20 years ago, you wrote a really memorable line about a movie in which the space for the body was destroyed by a lot of quick cutting. It was something like, this is not, pos this is not just possibly the worst movie ever made, but a vision of the end of movies. Oh, it was that John Travolta yeah, thing. it was John Travolta. Staying alive. Yeah, yeah, well, a vision came true. Well, I, I'm wondering if, there's, if you see anything positive other than economic possibility in the new technologies or whether that prophecy is still holding for you even with, with every new technological advance. Are there any aesthetic excitements for you? Did you see Moulin Rouge in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, I, but, but I was reminded of that line when I saw Chicago. Is this the way to shoot dance? No, I mean, looks so like a lot of pistons there. moving. And yeah, yeah, no, now, I of course, in, in, in Chicago, none of them is a dancer. But, um, you know, you, you all know that Fred, that Fred Astaire insisted his whole body be shot from top to bottom, and, and you could see the whole, you could see the entire movement of the line of his movement and Ginger Rogers and Gene Kelly, the same thing. Um, now it's all fragmented up into little pieces um, and then put together. These things are editing table masterpieces and choreographic disasters. That's why, I mean, I, was, I went to, you know, I've, <laughs> movie critic wakes up. I went to see, I actually reviewed it because they needed a pinch hitter, um, uh, Hairspray at, on Broadway, and it was such a relief to me to see numbers from beginning to end, you know, <laughs> so to speak, in full frame. 
the Scythian. Yeah, right. Um, and um, no, it's it seems you know as I've, I've been blaming MTV uh, because I think that's where this fragmentation of the image became endemic, but I, I don't mind it in MTV because it's a kind of, you know, it is a selling tool to establish a mood to sell a song. But, you know, musicals used to have characters as well as movement. And uh, I don't, it's the way it's going now, it's very unlikely. And now, but how, you know, there are great directors who don't do this. Almodovar doesn't do this. In, in Talk to Her, there's some ballet sequences that are shot full frame so you can see them. From top to bottom, and they're and they're very moving, and it's because they're coherent in that way, what they mean in terms of the rest of the movie become very clear. You're not dazzled by a lot of waste motion, so it takes aesthetic taste. But you know the the marketing techniques are to cut, 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 and it made, it's a lot easier to cut now that everyone's using computers. When I was in film school, you know, or anyone making a movie, until 20 years ago, you know, when you decided to, it was only the work print, of course, not the negative, that is the positive print. When you made a cut, it was a serious business. You lost a frame, and you paste, had to paste the two pieces of film together, right? And, you know, and, and um, so you thought about making a cut. Now it's, you can try 18 different things on the computer just to see how they work, and it's one of the reasons the cutting has become so glib, because it's become so easy. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. For coming. Terrific. I'm glad we got some questions in there. So it was great. Yeah, great.